Welcome to this episode of the New Life Christian Fellowship Podcast. Here is your host, Pastor Eric Stillman. So uh, if you have a Bible, you can open up to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. That's where we're going to be this morning, going through this sermon series that I've called The Gospel Changes Everything as we go through the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church in Corinth that he started around the year 50 AD. He started the church, he built it up a little bit, he moved on to start another church, and then about the year 54, 55 AD, he sent this letter to the church in Corinth in response to a letter they had sent about questions they had and in response to a lot of issues that he heard that were happening at the church. It's a 16-chapter letter, so there were lots of issues. And you're going to uh, find as we go through this that they run the gamut of all kinds of things they're dealing with. The last two chapters that we looked at the last two weeks were about all these sexual issues that were going on in the church. And then in chapters 8 through 10, which we're going to look at today and the next week or two, um, there's issues around how this new community deals with the rampant idolatry in the city and how they interact with the idols. Because in Corinth, there was all kinds of gods and goddesses. It was a polytheistic Greek culture, part of the Roman Empire. So you had statues and temples to Apollo and Aphrodite and all of these. And it was very um, natural to be, if you're part of the civic life, to be eating food that had been sacrificed to idols, going to worship in these temples and have meals and banquets in people's homes where they would sacrifice food to these idols and gods and goddesses and then serve them to you. And they're wondering, okay, we believe that there's only one God. We don't believe in these gods. Is it idolatry to participate in this kind of behavior or not? And they were dividing over this and there was questions over this. Now, this is one of those examples as you read through the New Testament, there's some some things you read where you're like, oh, this is exactly what's going on today. You read it and you say, this is, this is very, you know, much, especially like when we went through like the sexual issues in the last two chapters, you'll say, wow, there's a lot of parallels between what was happening in Corinth and what's happening today. This is one of those issues you look at, and for most of you, you're saying, I don't know when the last time was. I had to, you know, I was offered food that had been sacrificed to an idol. For most of you, I'd guess that's not as normal, right? That's not happening every day. Some of you, maybe you've been in cultures where that's been the case. This is one of those chapters where it's more about what are the principles that we learn and how do we apply them to similar situations today. So as we go through this chapter, we're going to look at, well, what was going on in this chapter? What is this whole food sacrifice to idol thing? And then what are the principles we draw out of this that apply to similar situations today? You're going to find as we you know, pay attention to this and read through it, you're going to say, well, maybe there's principles that apply to things like drinking alcohol. You know, what kind of movies you watch or what kind of music you listen to. There might be some parallels to things like yoga and should we participate as a Christian in practices that come out of non-Christian backgrounds. There's going to be some similarities as you go through this, okay? Even if the whole food sacrifice to idols thing is not obviously a parallel to today. So let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 13, and then we'll dive into what it means. 1 Corinthians 8. Now, about food sacrificed to idols. We know that we all possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know, but the man who loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and there is no God but one. 
For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone knows this. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone with a weak conscience sees you who have this knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't he be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against your brother in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause him to fall. This is God's word. Let me pray before we continue. Lord, help us to understand what this passage meant to its original hearers, what it means for us today. Help us to apply this to our lives and whatever situations that this is relevant to, so that you might be glorified through our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said, in Corinth, there were many temples, many shrines to all these gods and goddesses. And as these Christians came out of that lifestyle, they started to wrestle with, is participating in this idolatry? It was very common to go over to someone's home and they're offering you a meal that had been dedicated to an idol. It's very common if you're going to a wedding or going to a banquet, it's going to happen in a temple, a God's temple, an idol's temple, and you're going to have to eat this meat that's been sacrificed to an idol. And so the question is, is this okay to do or is it something that is idolatry, that's against the Lord? Is it just eating food or is it something more than that? And so over these three chapters, Paul lays out his argument, and he doesn't come right out and say whether it's right or wrong. You'll notice he doesn't come out and say, yes, it's wrong, or yes, it's right. Instead, he starts by laying down some principles that are relevant to get them to think this through on their own. It's very interesting how he does this. He wants them to think through, well, what are the underlying questions and principles that will help you not only in this, but in many other circumstances to, be, uh, to, be honored, uh, to honor the Lord in your decision-making? And you can see, one of the things you might say, this is a, an argument I'm going to put up here, that a, a statement that is very familiar if you've been here, that keeps coming up again and again in different realms. He says basically this, in Christ we have freedom. But we are to use that freedom not to serve our own interests, but to serve others. This is a theme that has come up repeatedly throughout 1 Corinthians. Even the last chapter is about sexuality. He's arguing we're free, but use that freedom to serve your spouse, not just to please yourself and your own self-interest. Again and again, he wants them to know that in Christ you are free. You're free from all these rules. You're free from all these laws, but use that freedom not to please yourself, but to serve your brother, serve your sister. So to illustrate this, he talks about two types of people, one that he says has a weak conscience, and then by way of contrast, we'll say the other one would be the ones with a strong conscience. And so the first group, he says this, he says, so then about eating food sacrificed to idols. Again, remember, this is in response to a letter they wrote. Our best understanding is there's a couple quotes in here again, that they've quoted him these things. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world. There's no God but one. That's probably a quote that he's quoting from their letter that they've said, listen, 
we know that an idol is nothing. There's only one God. So these idols are not really gods. They're just statues, statues of fake gods. There is no Apollo. There is no Aphrodite. They're pretend gods. And so these idols, these statues are not really gods. And the meat, therefore, that is dedicated to these gods is not really dedicated to a god. It's dedicated to a statue. It's really nothing. There's only one God. That's those with the strong conscience what they're arguing. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and there's no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there's but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. So you hear their argument there? They're saying these are make-believe gods. And so we can go into these temples and we can eat this meat and we can go to our friend's home and we can eat this meat because meat that's been sacrificed to a nothing, it's nothing to be afraid of. It's nothing that's going to contaminate us. It's not actually participating in idolatry. It's just meat. So you can understand where they're coming from. Why would we say no to a social situation? Why would we say no to a situation where maybe we can share the gospel and build relationships because we're afraid that this meat is contaminated? It's, it's nothing. It's just meat. But then there's another group Paul recognizes. He calls them the, those with a weak conscience. And he says, some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. And he says in verse 10, For if anyone with a weak conscience sees you who have this knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't he be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols so this weak brother for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge? So the first group says this idol is nothing. It's a fake god, so this meat is fine for us to eat, and we can go into this temple and not risk sinning against the Lord. But he says there's a second group, and they've probably come out of this pagan idolatrous background And for them to go into an idol's temple or to eat food that's been sacrificed to an idol would feel like a return to their pre-Christian roots. It would feel like a return to their pagan background. It would feel feel to them like they are rejecting God and going back to the life from which they were delivered. Does that make sense? So for them, he says, they can't go into this temple without being pulled back into their pre-Christian past. They can't go and eat this meat sacrificed with an, from an idol without feeling like they have gone back on the Lord and gone back on the commitment they've made to him. They are rejecting God and going back to their pagan roots by participating in this. So yes, for you, those strong conscience people, for you, you eat this meat and it's no big deal. For you, it's like, this is not idolatry. It's just meat. The second group, it means more than just meat. It means participating in idolatry, it's sin to them. So he says, there's two groups here. He's talking to the strong and saying, yes, for you, we understand. For you, it's nothing. But there's a whole other group of your brothers and sisters to whom this is actually sin. Basically saying there's a difference between the ontological, what you might say, reality, that yes, there's no God. There's no fault. These are false gods. There's no Aphrodite. There's no Apollo. They're false gods. Yes, that's true. But there is an existential subjective reality that to some people, they do have an influence. To some people, they do feel like sin and idolatry. They do feel like they're pulling them away from God. You can imagine what the problem was probably happening. If there actually were these two groups, you would imagine how they'd both look down on each other, right? You can imagine how the strong conscience people look down on the weak conscience and be like, come on, people. Come on. 
It's not really a god. There is not really an Aphrodite or an Apollo. Just it's meat. Just go in there and eat meat. God has set you free. There's only one God. Why are you so hung up on this meat and these idols? They're just fake gods. But then you can imagine how the, those with a weak conscience would look at the ones with the strong conscience, and they'd look down on them. Be like, why are you compromising your faith by participating in an idolatry? Christ has set you free. Why are you eating in an idol's temple? Why are you eating this meat that's been sacrificed to an idol? Why are you so afraid of rejection by coming out and being separate from them? They both have pretty good arguments against each other. And you can imagine how they both look down on each other and divide over this. So Paul wades into these waters and tries to bring some understanding and some unity. So he makes two arguments. Let me look at the two arguments that Paul makes. First of all, he says this to the strong. Remember, he's speaking to the strong conscience people, those who say, meat, it's just meat. There's no such thing as an idol. First thing he tells them is this. Your knowledge is incomplete. Your knowledge is incomplete. Yeah, you say, oh, you know, we know, and we know there's no idol. But he says this, knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. Yes, you know that there's no other gods. Yes, you know that there's only one God, okay? You know that these idols represent really nothing. But you don't know everything, First of all, you don't know everything. First of all, you may be wrong in this. Not that there's other gods, but as you read ahead into chapter 10, he actually starts to make the argument that these idols are actually associated with demonic presences. Yes, there's no other gods, but there is a whole other spiritual element, and there are demons behind these idols. And so maybe by participating in this idolatry, you're actually participating in demonic activity. So the first thing he does to argue with them is saying, yes, you know but you don't know everything. Your knowledge is not complete. So be careful. Be careful in your arrogance of thinking like we know and these weak people don't know anything and they're not, they're not acting on knowledge. We're acting on knowledge. You don't know everything. Be a little more humble than that. He says knowledge puffs up. You think you know something. All that does is make you arrogant. It puffs up your ego so that you think you're better than other people. It's not like love. Love builds up. Knowledge puffs up. In a few more chapters in 1 Corinthians 13, the, the love chapter, he's going to say this. He says, if I have the gift of prophecy and I can fathom all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. He says, even if you have all knowledge in the world, but you don't apply that knowledge through the lens of love, through the filter of love, if you don't apply your knowledge with a loving attitude, you're nothing. You're just puffed up. Your ego is big. You're arrogant. But you're not actually taking that knowledge and using it in a loving way. Is there anyone that comes to mind? You know, is, your, is there anyone in your life you can think of like, oh, I, I know people. You know, we all know people who know a lot and it's puffed them up and it's inflated their ego and it's caused them to act in unloving ways. They take their knowledge and they use it to look down on others and condemn others and judge others instead of using that knowledge and loving others. And so Paul's making it clear here, yeah, you know a lot, first of all, but that doesn't mean that you're acting in love. Knowledge just puffs up. And secondly, your, love, your knowledge is not necessarily complete. Just because you know something doesn't mean you know everything perfectly. Just because you know there's no actual other gods doesn't mean 
that you're missing the point that these idols may actually have demonic presence behind them. And by participating with these idols, you may be opening yourself up to demonic influence. So the second thing he wants to tell them is not only is your knowledge is complete, but that love is primary. Love is more important. Knowledge is good, and it's so important, but knowledge without love, as he says in 1 Corinthians 13, it's, it's a clanging gong. It's a resounding gong, a clanging cymbal. It's just noise. So he goes on to say this. He says, be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone with a weak conscience sees you who have this knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't he be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols? And so this weak brother for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against your brothers in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause him to fall. Are you following his argument here? He's saying, you know, you know that there's no other gods and so this is just meat. But by doing this, you are, have, you have these brothers and sisters who are watching you. They're watching what you do. And they are ones who've come out of this background where this represents idolatry. It represents going against God. And they see you doing that. And they say, well, I guess if the more mature, knowledgeable people do it, then we can do it. And they go in. And for them, it's, it's, it's not good. It goes against their conscience because for them, it's idolatry. For them, it's participation in something that is anti-Christ. And so he says, you're destroying them. By your freedom, by exercising your freedom in eating, you are destroying your brothers and sisters because they're going to come out and their conscience has been violated and they're going to they're feel like they have just offended God and gone back on their faith. So he says, yeah, I know this, but out of love, I'm not going to participate in that because it will offend my weaker brothers and sisters. It's going to lead them into sin. And so I will gladly, he says, he, he even takes it to the extreme. I won't even meet, meet again. I won't even eat meat again if it's going to cause them to fall. He even says it's sin. You're sinning against your brothers. You're sinning against Christ by what you're doing. Even if your conscience is clear, you're not acting in love towards your brother. So yes, knowledge is not perfect. It's not full, and, it's, and love is primary. It makes me think of Jesus' words in Matthew 18, where he says, I mean, this one he's talking about children, but I think it applies. He says, if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to sin. Such things must come, but woe to the man through whom they come. He says, those of you who take your knowledge and apply it in such a way that it causes your brothers and sisters to fall into sin. This is, that's, that is sin. That is not love. Knowledge alone tells those strong people it's okay to eat meat, but love, on the other hand, would tell them it's not okay because it's going to cause my brothers and sisters to stumble. This is what he's going to say in a couple chapters. It sums it up pretty well. It says, everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive. Nobody should seek his own good, but the good of others. Sums it up pretty well. You have freedom in Christ. Use that freedom not to serve and please yourself, but to serve your brothers and sisters. Everything is permissible, but not everything you do is going to build others up. So instead, seek the good of others. 
So again, he is not necessarily answering the question yet in chapter 8. He's not answering the question about whether it is okay for a Christian to eat meat sacrificed to an idol in a vacuum. If you were just one person, no one's watching, he hasn't yet answered that question. But what he is saying, first and foremost, is he's laying down a, a principle here that it can apply not only in this situation, but in many situations, which is there's freedom in Christ. Use that freedom to serve your brothers and sisters. And so he's telling the Corinthians in this specific situation, yes, you have this knowledge, and knowledge might tell you this, but love trumps knowledge. And if you're loving your brothers and sisters, you won't participate in this. Listen again to verse 2 and 3. He said, The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know, but the man who loves God is known by God. I think that last verse there highlights, think of what it means to know God. If there's knowledge of God without love for God, what, that's nothing. Again, it's in the same way, it's, it's nothing. Knowledge of God has to include love for God and being loved by God. It's a love relationship with God. If you just know God intellectually in your head that there's a God, that's in the end nothing. James says even the demons believe there's a God. But they don't love God and they're not loved by God. Knowledge is nothing. Knowledge is very important, but it's nothing without love is what I mean. Knowledge without love is nothing. So now, most of us, again, as I said in the beginning, are not faced with this specific situation today. You're not being offered meat sacrificed to an idol. But there are parallels and there are implications for us. So let me just share two implications from this passage for us today. The first thing from this passage that I read and, and, and understand is this, that you can disagree with someone and still act in love towards them. That in this church, you have two camps of people who disagree with each other and are judging each other. And he's saying, no, you can disagree with each other and have different consciences about this specific thing, meat sacrificed to an idol, one person's conscience tells them it's okay, another says it's not. You can disagree and you can still love each other. You can still act in love towards each other, even if you disagree. I would say that that is very relevant, not only in the church, but outside the church today. Because all around us in this culture, we have people who have different convictions and different moral convictions and consciences who are telling them one thing or the other. And it's very natural to look down on each other and say, well, you're wrong and you're wrong and you're wrong and you're wrong. I'm right, you're wrong. And there's different ways that our culture approaches it. I'm going to give you two examples and then there's the biblical example that Paul is giving. Option one is, I think this and you think this. I'm right, you're wrong. And so I'm going to judge you and condemn you and exclude you until you change and think the way I do. This was the way of the Pharisees in Jesus' day. There were a lot of sinful people out there, and the Pharisees basically just judged and condemned in the hopes that they would repent and get their acts together. That's kind of the Pharisaic way. It's the way of many religious people today, too, and people who are not religious. I'm right, you're wrong. Whether it's politics, whether it's lifestyles, whether it's whatever, morality, whatever it might be. I am right, you are wrong. I'm going to judge you and condemn you until you change your mind and become like me. That's how we're going to handle disagreements in this world. Second option is to say, well, there's no right and wrong. There's what's right for you. There's what's right for you. And there's what's right for you. 
but there's no objective right and wrong. And so we just need to tolerate and accept that everyone's perspective is right. No one can judge anyone else. Acceptance means what's right for you is right, and what's right for you is right, even if they're completely different. Even if they're opposed to each other, it doesn't matter. We just need to acknowledge and tolerate that whatever is right for that person, whatever they say is right, is right for them. Everyone should be free to live as they please, and no one can tell you that you're wrong. Now, that sounds tolerant, doesn't it? It sounds very tolerant, but it's actually just a different type of intolerance because how does that approach interact with someone who says, no, there is right and wrong? It says, you're dangerous. You need to stop thinking that. It's dangerous for you to say that someone is wrong. You need to stop and become like us and say, no, no, there is no right and wrong. Everyone can do whatever they please. And so it's just another type of intolerance, really. It's just as long as you agree with us that everyone can believe whatever they want and live however they want, then we'll accept you. But if you say, no, no, there is right and there is wrong, well, then you're out of the club. You know? You're a danger. You need to change and become like us. When you look under the surface, that kind of tolerance winds up being the same kind of intolerance as option one. There is a better way, and it's this way that Paul is laying out here, that acceptance and tolerance doesn't mean saying that everyone is what they believe is right. You can say that what someone believes is wrong, how someone is living is wrong, and still accept them as a person and still love them as a person. See the difference? It's not saying what you believe or how you live, everyone is right. It is saying there is right and wrong, but it's saying acceptance and tolerance means that I will accept and love you as a person, even if you believe differently than I do, even if you live differently than I do, even if your morality is different than I do, even if you have different convictions than I do, I will accept and love you as a person. I will enter into a relationship with you. I will welcome you to my house for a meal. I will go to your house for a meal. I will listen to you. I will understand where you're coming from. I would die for you. You see the difference? It's not acceptance and tolerance that says, I need to just shut off my brain and say, whatever you think and believe and however you live is right for you, therefore it's right. It's saying, even if I, what I believe that you're doing is wrong, I will still love you and accept you as you are, as a person made in the image of God. It's a different kind of tolerance. And it does, I know, I mean, again, I, I think of our society today and how it's kind of like, for many people, it's if, well, if you say, you know, if you don't agree with my lifestyle, then you're a hater, right? You ha- and gotten away from being able to say, no, no, I can still disagree with you and love you. It is possible to disagree with you and love you. So this is what Paul's encouraging. You can disagree with someone and still act in love towards them, still welcome them, still be willing to lay down your life and die for them. In Romans chapter 14, he writes, you then, why do you judge your brother? Why do you look down on your brother? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. 
It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in your brother's way. And remember what he said in verse 7, accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. How did Christ accept you? If we're supposed to accept one another as Christ accepted you, did Christ accept you by saying, hey, it's okay however you live, whatever you believe. You know, I'll just tolerate you as you are and accept you. Whatever it is you believe, you know, you're good. No, that's not how he accepted. He accepted us by saying what you're doing is wrong, but I love you and I am willing to enter into relationship with you and die for you to bring you into relationship with me. I'm willing to love you sacrificially, even though I disagree with how you're living and what you're doing. You see, that's what Paul is advocating here. That's the tolerance he's talking about. Accept one another as Christ accepted you. Even if what someone is doing is wrong, even if the way they approach sacrificing, you know, eating food sacrificed to idols, he's talking to the Corinthians, even if someone in your life is living in a way that is contrary to what you think is right, it is possible, he says, to follow example of Christ and still love someone enough to be able to enter into relationship with them, to lay down your life for them. That's the real tolerance and acceptance. And the second thing then, he says, is this. Not only can you disagree with someone and still act in love towards them, but use your freedom in Christ to serve others. Verse 13, therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause him to fall. He's using hyperbole there by saying, if I need to cut meat out of my diet so that my brother or sister does not fall and be destroyed, then I will do that out of love for them. I am willing to give up my rights. I'm willing to give up and lay down my freedoms out of love for my brother or my sister, just as Christ gave up his rights and freedom to lay down his life for me. Remember again, this passage I just put up from 1 Corinthians 10, everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive. Nobody should seek his own good, but the good of others. That is love, he says. Love is willing to lay down our own rights, our own freedoms for the good of someone else. You may say, I am free in the Lord to do whatever I want. Well, yes, in some ways you are, but in other ways you're not. You're free to use your freedom to serve and love others. And in that way, you serve the Lord. Remember Matthew 25, 40, where Jesus said, the king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did to one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. And so if you see someone who has a weak conscience, who can't enter a temple or eat food sacrificed to an idol, and you look down on them and say, oh, they just, they have no brains. They haven't thought this through that a meat sacrificed to an idol is nothing. It's just meat. He says, well, whatever you do to them, you do to me. If you judge and condemn them and look down on them, you're doing that to me. And if you lay down your rights and give up your rights to make sure that they are not destroyed, you do that to me. Use your freedoms to serve your brother and sister. Paul wrote this in Romans 15.1. He said, where'd it go? We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Thank you. We who are strong 
ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please his neighbor for his good to build him up. That is love, he's saying. That is love. Following the example of Jesus who gave up his rights and freedom as the eternal son of God to come down here and to live like a slave in order to love us, to enter into a relationship with us, to love us sacrificially all the way to the death on the cross so that we would not be destroyed, so that we would have eternal life. And he says, follow in Jesus' footsteps by taking your freedom and using it to serve others, not to please yourself. Each of us should please his neighbor for his good to build him up. So think about, you know, again, we don't live in a culture where there's food sacrificed to idols, but maybe the, the, the immediate examples that might come to your mind might be uh, alcohol, right? That might be an example where for you, you look at the Bible and the Bible says, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, but it doesn't say you cannot drink alcohol. It just says, don't get drunk. And so for you, perhaps, your freedom in Christ says, I can eat, I can drink. I can have a glass of wine, I can have a beer, I can drink alcohol as long as I don't get drunk and it doesn't offend my conscience, it doesn't come between me and the Lord, it's just an enjoying of an alcoholic beverage. And Paul would say, okay, but what if by you drinking, you are causing someone else to stumble? What if your spouse struggles? What if a friend struggles? What if there's someone and you drinking in front of them is going to destroy them because they are going to enter in and they, for them, for their conscience, drinking alcohol is not good. It's a, it's a return to a lifestyle that is opposed to Christ. It's a return to a lifestyle where they were falling away from the Lord. And so for your conscience, drinking alcohol is fine. And by yourself, maybe you will. And with someone else who it's fine for them, you might as well. But if you are with someone or someone's watching you, and for them it's not okay, for them it's going to lead them to destruction, for their sake, Paul would say, you would abstain. For their sake, you would not enter into something that might destroy them. Maybe you can think of other examples like the music you listen to or the movies you watch. Maybe, again, buy yourself a certain type of movie or a certain type of music. might be fine. You listen to something, and it does not lead you into sin. It does not cause you to stumble. It doesn't lead you away from the Lord. You can watch it with a clean conscience. You can listen to it with a clean conscience and just enjoy it as a good gift from the Lord. But there might be others in your life who they hear that music and it brings them back to a place where they were not walking with the Lord and it leads them down a path towards destruction. Some others who might watch that same movie and for them it brings up images that are not healthy for them, that offend their conscience, that lead them astray from the Lord. So again, there might be some media out there for you that is fine and doesn't offend your conscience, but if you partake in it in the presence of someone for whom it's not fine, it might destroy them, and then it would be sinful for you. Even though it doesn't offend your conscience, you're doing it not out of love for another person, and you're using your freedom in a way that offends a brother or sister. And so if that's the way it is, then as Paul would say, I will never watch those movies again. I will never listen to that music again if it leads my brother or sister to sin. 
Again, I gave the example of like a yoga, for instance. Again, for some of you, yoga is exercise. It's stretching. For others, it represents a, a life they were delivered from, a lifestyle with paganism or new age thought or Buddhism or something. And for them, these poses are actually poses that bring them back to when they used to be not following the Lord. And so for some, it may just be stretching. For others, it might be a return to a way that they were not walking with the Lord. And for them, for you to engage in that would be sinful because you'd be leading a brother or sister astray. Maybe you can think of other examples. Those are some of the first ones that came to my mind. But the principle from today applies that we use our freedom in Christ not for ourselves, but we use our freedom in love, use our knowledge, apply our knowledge with a filter of love, thinking of our brothers and sisters. And if we're going to engage in something that might be fine for our conscience before the Lord, but it's going to lead a brother or sister astray, cause them to be destroyed, then as Paul said, I'll never eat meat again. I won't do it if it's going to cause my brother or sister to stumble. So to sum up then, our knowledge that we have is partial. Just because we know something doesn't necessarily mean we know everything. And the right thing to do for us that we think, if it's not done in love, it may be the wrong thing. If it's not done in love, it may be the wrong thing. So use your freedom that you have in Christ to serve your brothers and sisters. Amen. Let me close in prayer, and then we're going to respond in worship. Lord, help us to apply our knowledge through the filter of love, to think through those who are watching us, children, younger brothers and sisters in the Lord who watch us and want to follow our example. Things that might be fine for us to do if we were by ourselves might not be fine because they will lead brothers or sisters astray. And so please help us to apply this knowledge through the lens of love in a way that honors and respects our brothers and sisters in the Lord. Help us do everything to honor you and to build each other up. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the New Life Christian Fellowship Podcast. We are located at 1155 Silas Dean Highway in Weathersfield, Connecticut, and can be found online at newlife-ct.org. No redistribution or use of any kind of this recording is allowed without express written consent of New Life Christian Fellowship. 